Hello, everyone, and welcome to Risky Business's coverage of OSIRT's 2011 conference. I'm Patrick Gray. These recordings are made possible by Microsoft through their sponsorship of our coverage. Thanks to them. Uh, and thanks to them, uh, myself and Risky Business sound recorders Josh Bell have been running around like headless chickens uh, at OSIRT last week recording talks and interviews. Fewer interviews this year, uh, unfortunately, because I managed to catch a cold at the conference that I'm still recovering from. Uh, but yes, big thanks to Microsoft for making our coverage possible, and we hope you've enjoyed what we've posted so far. Anyway, what you're about to hear is a full presentation by OSCERT's Day 3 keynote speaker, Ross Anderson. And uh, Ross has kindly allowed us to podcast his entire presentation, so thanks, Ross, if you're listening. Ross Anderson is a professor of security engineering at Cambridge University and the author of the best-selling textbook, Security Engineering, A Guide to Building Dependable Distributed Systems. He was a pioneer of peer-to-peer systems, of hardware tamper resistance, and of the economics of information security. Ross will discuss in this talk the economics of information security in two contexts, frauds against payment networks and the resilience of the internet. The talk will draw on a recent major study Cambridge did on the resilience of the internet. It's a long talk, but a good one, although I do think Ross probably overstates the problems with chip and pin, uh, as far as I'm aware. The problems he raises, uh, you know, have nothing to do with really being able to clone the later model DDA cards, uh, chip and pin cards. Uh, he outlines some problems that affect stolen cards, which I don't think EMV was originally designed to fix anyway. But, you know, I do agree with him 100% on the idea that organisations have to be given economic incentives to fix some of these trickier security problems. So it's, you know, it's a really interesting talk. Uh, anyway, here's Ross Anderson's talk, and I hope you enjoy it. As our societies become more and more complex and more and more dependable on technology, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we come to depend on that isn't entirely visible on the surface. And as computer scientists, we tend to have um, an idea of organizing research by grand challenges. What are the big problems that you should be getting your research students to think about? What are the areas in which you might be thinking to doing a startup if you're entrepreneurially inclined? What are likely to be the big problems over the next five to ten years? And here's my marker. As we get um, computers and communications embedded invisibly everywhere, we're seeing all sorts of complex global scale socio-technical systems emerging. Things like smart grids for distributing electricity, things like the global card payment system, um, specific company systems like Facebook, for example, which 500 million people now use. And when systems get this big and this complex, how are we to understand them and manage them and improve them? Do we just get swamped by all the complexity, or is there something sensible that we as engineers can do? Well, to put it in context, since about 10,000 years ago when we um, invented agriculture and we've had enough surplus you know, to have towns and to have people who do specialized stuff, we've been building complex systems, armies, civil services, religions, industries, markets, and so on. And until very recently, these all had to be managed locally. They had to be driven by people, and so they were organized by hierarchy and small group relationships and um, in the last few centuries and exchange as well. Here are the sort of systems that I'm thinking of as possible templates for thinking. Roman army created one of the greatest um, empires of antiquity. 
On the other side of the world, the Chinese civil service. Um, here's a painting from 700 years ago about people sitting the civil service exam. You ran China by means of a, a group of people who were selected for scholastic ability and then encultured in a certain way of running things. Here's an early computer. This is how people did computation in the 1880s. There's a, a mate of mine did a PhD in history of computing and looked at how the Victorians did large-scale computational tasks. Well, that's easy. You hire 30,000 clerks and you set them to shuffling paper around. And all the stuff that we know now as computer scientists, sorting, searching, indexing databases and so on, had an equivalent then. But it had to be kept very simple because it had to be organized by individuals at the local level. And when things went wrong, of course, you dealt with them using common sense. How many people have been to Bombay? A handful. Well, in Bombay, there's a system whereby um, about 20,000 people are in the business of collecting your lunch from your house at 10 o'clock in the morning from your wife and then taking it by means of uh, carts and trains and uh, bikes and barrows and so on to your place of work by 1 p.m. And most of these guys can't read and write. And this is a system that's run you know, entirely by little numbered marks on lunch pills. There's an example of what you can do without computing. But of course, this is all now going online. And nowadays, these guys have a website, and so you can go and use your credit card to click and order a delivery. And so the world's changing. And how it's changing is that we've got people plus software. The software is what makes it really, really new. Things like the internet itself and the global card payment system. These are the two examples I'll mostly be talking about today. But you've got things like the global advertising ecosystem, which is of great interest if you're Google. Um, smart grids for electricity, something else that we've done bits and pieces on, and Facebook and so on and so forth. Now, this makes the world different. And how? Because all of a sudden, if you've got a system like Facebook, for example, with 500 million users, you've got all sorts of people in there who are rivals, who are competitors, or who maybe even be at war with each other. So you've got Israelis and Palestinians having a go at each other, Indians and Pakistanis, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, this system that you started off just for you know, a few dorm rooms in Harvard comes to encompass all the world's problems. How do you deal with competition? How do you deal with conflict? Well, um, I started off, like I suppose many people here, as a technical um, security guy. I did a degree in maths and learned some hardware engineering and became a cryptographer. And all through the 90s, we worked on stuff like crypto and protocols and, 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 and so on. And the traditional systems engineering approach is that you build systems for scalability, you think of your algorithms and data structures, then you worry about distributed systems, file locking and so on, you dump complexity where you can, put it at the edge of the network, and then you see security as simply an external um, boundary problem. You use things like crypto and authentication and filtering to keep the bad guys out. And I worked for a while in banking, and this is exactly how we ran banking systems in the 1980s. And looking back on it, what was different then was that all the systems for which we were responsible were in one company. So if there was ever a dispute with some other team between the ATM team and the general ledger team, you can fix it by going to lowest common manager. 
But of course, the world has changed now, because now that banks have hooked up their systems into a global payments infrastructure, there isn't a chief executive of the global payments infrastructure to whom you can refer. Okay, there are organizations like Visa and EMVCO and so on and so forth, but that's not how the world works. How the world works now is that rules are set, and then people jostle in a market, and then you've got an equilibrium coming out, which depends on the self-interested striving of perhaps tens of thousands, perhaps even millions of individual players. And so around about 2000 or so, there's a number of us began to realize that this traditional systems engineering approach is not enough. Sure, you need it. You need to know this stuff, and you need to be able to do it well. But all of a sudden, you have to be able to manage competition and conflict too. And one of the interesting things that we've been doing over the past 10 years is starting to apply economic analysis to security and dependability. Now, I started worrying about this in about 2000 when we'd observed that banks in the USA got um, a much tougher ride from their regulators and from their courts than British banks did. If you've got a dispute with your bank in America and you're a customer, um, you'll typically win it. You can just phone them up and say, take this charge off my credit card, I didn't make it. In the UK, on the other hand, uh, because the initial lawsuits had gone the other way, the banks had a much easier ride. And if you complain to a bank in the UK, it'll typically say, well, tough luck, mate. Our systems are secure. It must be your fault. Go away. So you would think that banks in the UK would spend less money on security plus fraud as the banks in the USA. But when we started looking at the numbers, we found it was actually the other way around. Now, there's a paradox. How do you go about dealing with that? At the same time, there's a mate of mine, Hal Varian, who was then the chief econo at the, uh, an economics professor at Berkeley, was advising some antivirus companies, and they said, well, how come more people don't buy our stuff? Surely every, everybody in the world should go and spend 10 bucks on buying our antivirus software. And Hal began to figure out that, well, the reason that a lot of people didn't buy antivirus software is that by then, viruses were not attacking the owner of the machine on which they were resident, but they were starting to use the machine to attack Microsoft or Amazon or whatever. Now, you may very well pay um, 10 bucks to McAfee or Dr. Solomon or whoever to protect your own machine from attack, but to protect Amazon or Microsoft from attack? Hey, that doesn't make sense. And so we began to figure out that things often went wrong because the incentives weren't right. If banks get to dump the risk of fraud, on merchants and customers, then they've no longer got an incentive to look after system security, and eventually things go pear-shaped. If, in general, Alice is guarding a system or maintaining it, whereas it's Bob who pays the cost of security failures or of general breakdowns, um, then things are not going to be very dependable. And this is not just a security thing. Um, it's also something that is understood to some extent in the dependability sphere. Um, for example, if you've got a bunch of electricity companies hooked up to a grid, then whether the grid is dependable is going to depend on whether there's excess capacity. And if there isn't enough, then there's going to be blackouts, because when a station goes down for some reason or another, you won't have the reserve. Yet, if I'm an electricity generating company, why should I have extra capacity in order to enable you, my competitors, to offer a more dependable service to your customers. 
So you may end up having to have um, some kind of regulation to fix that. So what I'm getting at is that security and indeed insecurity are often an externality. Some, it's something that doesn't arise as a result of directed effort by individuals who are going to reap the benefits of their efforts, but it's a kind of side effect of things that people do for other motives altogether. And so over the past 10 years, um, there's a research community of people who look into security economics and dependability economics. And um, there's now over 100 of us. The, um, that's grown from a very small base in 2001, 2002. And the sort of things that we look at are firstly models of what's likely to go wrong, where incentives are out of kilter or where different players in the market have got different amounts of information about what's going on. And then, of course, once you've got theory, you've got to test it, so you've got to go out and measure. And so we get feeds, for example, from anti-phishing uh, takedown companies, and we look at the statistics of what's going wrong and how. We also look at the patching cycle. Uh, we look at policy questions, such as whether open source is better than closed source, uh, about whether responsible disclosure is the way forward, and if so, what sort of um, delay you should have between reporting a bug to a vendor uh, and disclosing it publicly. Then, of course, there's recommendations uh, on what people should do. Can government usefully do anything about cybercrime or about the dependability of the infrastructure? And that, of course, is where the rubber hits the road, because um, if you can't come up with sensible policy recommendations, then all this is just an ivory tower exercise. Um, but I'm pleased to report that we're now getting to the point that we can make sensible policy recommendations and that these are starting to be taken on board um, as I'll discuss shortly. So if we're going to look at the economics of information, goods, and services markets and how these interact with security, a good starting point is to ask how markets for things like software and services differ from, say, the market for coal or the market for potatoes. And there are three main ways in which they differ. The first is network effects that if you have got a system like the, the world's faxes or the world's phones or email or uh, a software platform, then the more people who use it, the more valuable it is to each individual, right? Because um, you may remember that faxes took off in 1985 and email in 1995 once enough people had it that everybody else had to have it. And exactly the same thing happens with platforms. If you remember back in 1985 or so, um, there was this tussle between the IBM PC and the Mac, and for a while you developed software for both platforms, and about 1985 people realized, well, IBM is going to win this one, we'll all develop our software for the PC, and then of course the PC had more software for it, so everybody bought PCs rather than Macs, right? So with this kind of network effect, you get markets that tip, and you're likely to end up with dominant firm markets where the winner takes all. There's a second effect, which is that in most of our um, business sectors, your fixed costs of producing something are very high, and your marginal costs of producing one more copy are very low. Now, Economics 101 says that in a price-competitive market, um, you'll end up with the market clearing price being the marginal cost of production. Right? And this is why information likes to be free. 
This is why all sorts of things from Linux to Wikipedia don't cost anything, because at the margin, the cost is zero. And if you're going to make money out of software or services, you've got to find some way of stopping price competition, patents, brands, compatibility, network effects, and so on. And this high fixed cost, low marginal cost feature also helps markets, uh, steers markets in the direction of monopoly. And the third thing is that you have got switching costs. Switching from one product or service to another is expensive. So suppose you've got a firm with 100 people who use PCs, say a law firm with 100 Fiernas, and you've gone and bought each of them um, a copy of Office and a copy of Windows so they can type writs and sue people. Well, you could just as easily um, give them open Office and Linux, but then you'd have all the bother of retraining them and converting documents and so on. And how much would that cost? Well, it would cost the same as you spent with Microsoft. It would cost the $50,000. Why? Because if you're a typical firm at the margin and it would cost you less to switch, then you'd switch. And if it would cost you more to switch, then Microsoft would jack up its prices. So that's how these markets tend to work, that the value of an industry is the total switching costs. And that's why so many security mechanisms nowadays go into controlling users rather than keeping out the bad guys. So, okay, your iPod has got RSA in it. Why is that there? To keep you locked into Apple. So that when you buy your iPod for 300 bucks, you then go and spend 3,000 bucks at the iTunes store and filling it up with sounds. Or if you're poor, you spend 3,000 bucks worth of effort borrowing all your mate's CDs and ripping them. But one way or another, <laughs> you're locked in for 3,000 bucks worth of lock-in. And this means that in two and a half years' time, when your iPod goes on the blink, you're going to be shelling out another 300 bucks to Steve Jobs to buy another one for the rest of your life. That's lock-in for you. So what's this got to do with security generally? Well, where you've got all these features together, then the likelihood of monopoly is pretty high. And that's why in our industry, when a new field opens up, there tends to be a great big race to dominate it, and then one firm walks off with the prizes, and its founders become billionaires. Now, 20 years ago, I used to consult a bit at uh, Microsoft when they were David to, Microsoft's, to IBM's Goliath. And there was a saying on campus then in Redmond, which is a tenth the size as it, that it is now, that, you know, we'll ship it on Tuesday and get it right by version 3. So I go and find some bugs in Cappy or whatever, and they say, right, we'll fix this one. It's a showstopper. The rest we'll fix next time round. Product's got to ship. And everybody knew this. And people used to say that, well, ship it Tuesday and get it right by version 3 was a kind of personal moral failing of Bill Gates. But I hope I've managed to convince you now um, that this wasn't a personal thing from Bill Gates. This is how the world works. And that whoever had won in the operating systems market would have been somebody who behaved the same. If Steve Jobs had been less of a perfectionist back in 1985, then we'd all have been using um, Apple Macs for the last 25 years instead of PCs. Now, this is interesting because it's a pattern that you can see again and again and again. It's not just PC operating systems. It's pretty well all the platform markets where security or dependability has been a factor, which is most of them. Symbian versus Palm five years ago. Symbian first developed a very insecure operating system, UIQ2. Then once they'd, uh, they'd beaten the competition, they moved to UIQ3, which they locked down. Facebook versus MySpace. 
Facebook is only now beginning to scratch its head and think about app security. And so the pattern that you get as a result of our industry's dynamics is that you get little security in the early versions because that makes it easier for people to develop apps, right? Because if when Windows had been fighting OS2 back in 1990, um, Windows had had you know, the full Multics range of access controls, people might well have just developed for OS2 instead. So people naturally build their platforms insecure and then lock it down later. Exactly the same thing happens in markets that you might not even think initially as being platform markets, like payment networks. And um, we now have a number of issues with payment networks. For example, the fact that everybody adopted um, SSL TLS in 1995 for web shopping rather than SET is why we get phishing attacks nowadays. So it took 10, 15 years for that particular chicken to come home to roost. But it's the same kind of mechanism going on. People deployed quick and dirty payment systems that would appeal to merchants, that would enable web, um, web commerce to get up and going, and left it to the next generation to worry about the fallout. So that's one of the things that economics can tell us about how things go wrong. There are some other neat ideas um, that can be very useful to people in our trade. And one of these is asymmetric information. Now, back in 2001, when I was beginning to think about this stuff, I went to spend some um, sabbatical time at Berkeley. And while I was there, one of their um, profs, George Akerlof, won the Nobel for a paper he wrote in the 1970s with this very, very simple idea in it. Suppose you've got a town that's got 100 used cars for sale, and 50 of these used cars are great, but they never break down, they just run, and the other 50 are lemons, as the Americans call them. Right? They're forever breaking down, they're always in and out of the garage, and suppose the good ones are worth 2,000 bucks and the lemons are worth 1,000 bucks. And what's the market price for cars going to be in that town? You might think, well, 50 times 2,000 plus 50 times 1,000 divided by 100 is 1,500. But the problem with that is that if the price were to start off at 1,500, then nobody who owned a good car would offer it for sale. Hey, and we've all had this, haven't we? I mean, when I got married, my folks bought me a Peugeot, and various times... After that, we thought about trading it in, and when we saw what the dealer would give us for it, you know, we thought, that's, that's just an insult. We run it into the ground, so we did. But, hey, this is why when you drive a new car out the showroom, about a quarter drops off the price. Because when you sell it secondhand, nobody knows whether it's a lemon or not. And this affects a whole bunch of markets. When you think of it, it's something that really affects our market. Because if you are a random punter, you know, some guy who owns a medium-sized company somewhere with a few hundred people and you're thinking of going and buying some security products for your network, firewall, whatever, how can you tell the difference between a good one and a bad one? How can you tell the difference between good encryption software and bad encryption software? You've got no clue. No clue at all. So in our industry from the very beginning, there has been a tendency to pile it high and sell it cheap, or to sell on irrelevant features. And people try and fix that with things like common criteria evaluations, 
but it's still one of the, the interesting and disturbing dynamics in our field. But it doesn't quite stop there because asymmetric information also includes adverse selection. The fact that the sick buy more insurance, for example, because the sick know that they're sick and so they load up on insurance and the insurance company doesn't know. And there's a fascinating application of this to trust. There's a Harvard researcher, Ben Edelman, who's done a lot of good work in this field, um, looked five years ago about trustee certifications and he found, by comparing a random selection of websites with a certification, with those that didn't have a certification, he found that those that did have a certification were more than twice as likely to be malicious, in that they try and download adware or spyware or whatever onto your machine. And he then went and looked at Google, and he did a number of typical business searches, and he found that the top paid search result was twice as likely to be malicious as the top free search result. Why? Because, you know, the guys in Ukraine buy ads. And people who've got a reputation, who've got enough ju Google juice, uh, may get the business coming to them anyway. And this was certainly a wake-up call for Google, who started uh, looking at web search quality and so on, because Ben's conclusion, don't click on ads, you know, if everybody had read and understood his paper, then Google would have evaporated by the end of the week. So there's some very, very powerful ideas in here. And the take-home message for people in our trade is that there are very complex interactions between certification and reputation and quality. And very often, certification schemes don't quite work or work in rather unexpected ways. Having said that, let's move on to payment systems. So EMV, which you're just getting rolled out here in Australia and New Zealand now, was introduced in Britain 2003 to 2005. We were the pioneers. We were told um, that this was going to solve the fraud problem definitively and uh, for all time. From the bank's point of view, it was a really, really neat and attractive thing because um, the, the deal with EMV is that if there's a dispute, then if a pin was used, the cardholder is liable. And if a pin wasn't used, then the merchant is liable. So guess who's not liable anymore? Hey, hey. So the banks hoped that fraud would go down, but it went up, as I think you might have predicted, having seen what's gone before, because once the banks no longer have a proper incentive to fight fraud, then why should they bother? And nobody else can, because it's the banks who control the payment network. So here's an example of one of the things that has gone wrong. This is the Ingenico um, PED. I've seen quite a few of these around, but it's the main installed base in the UK because Barclays, who are the uh, biggest card acquirer, give these to their merchants. And these were supposedly evaluated under the common criteria with a protection profile which said that it would cost you $25,000 to tap one of them. Not to break an entire model, but to just tap one physical device. And so um, two of my research students and I went out and bought a dozen of these on eBay, and we did a teardown and we did some reverse engineering. And we found that if you went into this little compartment at the back of the device and drilled in just there, then you could drop a paperclip onto the wire, which is the serial port between the pin pad and the smart card. And that carries the pin in one direction and the card details in the other direction. And with this, you could basically trojan the device so that you could harvest enough data from every transaction to make a MagStripe clone of that card that you could then use in an ATM worldwide. 
And uh, we did responsible disclosure on this. We told the banks in October 2007, and it came out in 2008, and you can see the video on YouTube. And the, the banks said that it wasn't a problem. You know, most villains aren't quite as clever as these Cambridge people. You need to have PhD people to do this. But this wasn't true because there were guys already doing it. And by July 2008, what happened was that you had um, some bad guys had got access to a warehouse in Dubai where the pin entry devices stopped to catch a breath en route from the factory in China to the distributors in the UK and the Netherlands. And they started putting bad things in them. Not the bad stuff that we designed, but bad stuff that they designed, which actually went under the keyboard, but, you know, uh, independent discovery. And the only way you could tell a Trojan pin entry device from a real one was by weighing it. It would arrive in the original packaging. You'd take it out, you'd plug it into your bank branch or into your supermarket, and all the customers who used it would get ripped, up, ripped off. So it was possible for people to go into a banking hall and sit down opposite a teller and do a transaction and have their credentials stolen there in the bank, right? And then have the bank blame them for negligence, saying our systems are secure, so it must be your fault. Hey. And then we had another failure in 2010 where we discovered a flaw that still works worldwide, including here in Australia and in New Zealand, whereby if you steal somebody's card, you can use it without knowing the PIN. And um, I have a video which we may or may not be able to get to work. So this, is, this appeared on the television about a year ago. We will stay with the question of money because most of us don't think twice about paying for something in a high street shop by keying in our PIN. It's easy, it's fast, and in most cases it works. But scratch a little under the surface and there are persistent reports of people who say they've been the subject of fraud of one kind or another on their credit card or their debit card. Now a team of computer scientists at Cambridge University has found a flaw in chip and pin so serious they think it shows that the whole system needs a rewrite. Our science editor Susan Watts has the story. We have to question the, the entire uh, architecture uh, that surrounds chip and pin. It really is time for um, a closer look to be taken in this whole area. But this flaw is really a whopper. Well, we think this is one of the biggest flaws um, that we've ever uncovered, that has ever been uncovered against payment systems. And, you know, I've been in this business 25 years. This is um, a flaw on a system that's used by hundreds of millions of people, by tens of thousands of banks, by millions of merchants. So how does the attack work? Essentially what it does is exploit a flaw in the chip and pin system that allows the terminal to think that a correct pin was entered and the card to think that a signature authorized the transaction. So at the end, the receipt says verified by pin. The bank is going to think that the pin was entered correctly, but uh, the criminal actually did not know the pin. Cambridge University gave us permission to see if the attack works in real life. The team set up in one of the university's cafeterias. We obviously don't want to give out too much detail, but in simple terms, SAR is hooking up the stolen card to a chip. This is controlled from a laptop and runs software written by the team. All of this is hooked up to a fake card which slots into the actual shop terminal. The kit wouldn't have to be this big. The team's already working on miniaturizing it into a unit the size of a remote control. 
Tsar has a trick up his sleeve. His dummy card has a concealed cable running up his arm to the kit in his backpack. So will it work? He doesn't need to know the actual pin from the stolen card. Any combination should do. The stolen card is getting a message that the purchase has been authorised by signature. This mismatch should allow the transaction to go ahead. And yes, it does. The printout states it's been verified by PIN. In fact, Saar tried a handful of high street debit and credit cards, keying in 0000 as the PIN, and it worked every time. So is this attack happening in the real world? The Consumers Association thinks chip and pin has helped to bring down instances of card crime, but many cases remain unexplained. It's very difficult to quantify exactly how big this problem is. What we do know from our um, investigations is that, say, around 14% of, of, of consumers on a representative basis will have said that they have suffered some kind of um, financial loss, which they believe is through fraud. The percentage of that which is actually from the, uh, this type of potential problem with chip and pin is something that's a lot less clear. What we do know is that we do have cases that are brought forward from individuals which seem quite persuasive. We understand that behind the scenes, some of the banks are already working on fixing this flaw. But they obviously haven't all fixed it yet, because the banks didn't alert any of us to the purchases we made using the Cambridge attack, our cards and a PIN 0000. Well, there we are. Uh, we actually looked for that attack after we kept on getting people coming to us. Um, a, a wide range of credible witnesses saying, help, my card was stolen, the villain couldn't possibly have known the pin, but the bank said I, uh, I, I must have compromised it somehow. So hey, um, the, one of the banks, Barclays, actually fixed that, um, which involves comparing what the card said with what the, merchants, the merchant terminal said, but they then unfixed it again. Uh, and since um, December or January, it's been working once more. We suspect that the back-end systems are so crafty uh, that if you turn on um, full cross-checking, then you end up getting too high a false positive rate. So this is a difficult system problem to fix, and although individual banks can have um, a go at fixing it locally, the whole ecosystem doesn't seem to support a global fix. And again, this is fundamentally an, an economic problem, or at least an incentives problem, in that the specification grew like topsy. EMV Co. doesn't really control it anymore. It's driven by about 100 vendors. The vendors' interests are different from the banks. And within the banks, the issuers and the acquirers have got different interests. And of course, coordinating 10,000 banks worldwide is an impossible job. So where does this lead us in policy terms? In Europe, we've got an organization, the European Network and Information Security Agency, that does the defensive side of cyber war for the European Commission. And they got us to write a report that you can get from my website and theirs, Security Economics and the Internal Market, looking at the um, causes of cyber crime and what governments could realistically do about it. So we went and looked at all the available data and um, we synthesized it, and um, if you want references to all the stuff that's there, then our report will, will give it to you. Uh, and we looked at all the relevant um, security economics research, 
and we come up with 15 recommendations, including security breach notification laws, which have been useful in the USA, where at least they stop these things being swept under the carpet anymore. Publication of fraud and malware statistics. Um, now there are only um, three of um, Europe's 27 member countries um, which publish regular and dependable statistics on bank fraud. And since most of the things that go wrong on the internet result in somebody losing money, if you don't, want, if you don't know what bank fraud is, then you don't know what sort of um, uh, war you're fighting. Um, malware statistics. Um, ISPs vary enormously um, in the speed and competence with which they will um, either wall off infected machines um, or take down machines that have been identified as being members of botnets, you know, prodding their customers to go and get AV software and uh, clean themselves up. And in the UK, we observed that it was largely the smaller ISPs who were doing this because they were scared that their peering relationships would be compromised if they ended up emitting too much uh, uh, bad stuff. Whereas the really big ISPs in Britain uh, were acting as huge sources of bad stuff that were swamping everybody else. Um, at least publishing statistics on who is good and who is bad uh, would enable you to start making some progress on this. And while companies like Microsoft and Google and Yahoo have got these statistics, they're unwilling them to publish them themselves because they don't want to end up getting sued. So there's a role for government there. There's also an issue in the regulation of product development because in Europe, if you've ever bought stuff in Europe, you'll see there's this CE sticker on it. Now, CE is basically self-certification by the manufacturer saying that it conforms with applicable security and safety standards or that it won't catch fire if you plug it into the mains, for example. And um, we've been recommending that this should be included, should be extended to cybersecurity, so that if somebody sells you a TV set that contains a Linux PC, for example, then it would be a good idea if they see to it that they can upgrade the Linux in it. Because if they can't, and we wake up one day finding that there's 10 million Sony PCs in Europe have all been recruited into a huge big botnet and there's no way we can patch them, then we want to at least make sure that Sony will be liable. And if Sony has to self-certify its devices as being secure by default, then it becomes impossible for them to use a, uh, you know, one of these um, click-through license agreements to say, don't sue us. So there's a number of these are now making their way into European policy. And more recently, um, the big piece of work that we did in the second half of last year was looking at the resilience of the Internet, again, in a project for the European Network and Information Security Agency. Now, infrastructure um, is different in a number of ways. Sure, payment systems are infrastructure of a sort, uh, but when you start looking at traditional critical national infrastructure, we get a number of interesting and difficult economic effects. I already mentioned the um, effect that you have to see to it that you provide sufficient surplus capacity, and that can be hard because you can end up with the people who provide capacity, in effect, enabling their competitors to deliver better service. There's also an issue of the enormous difference um, between the private costs and social costs of failure. Suppose you're running an electricity company and um, it goes offline for a few weeks. Then you've lost a few weeks' worth of revenue, and the country has lost a few weeks' worth of GDP. Uh, I don't know if any of you uh, were in Auckland during the big power cut in 1996, but that was a, a real hammer blow to the New Zealand economy when the, the CBD lost power for six weeks. And in general, if you use it, ele lose electric power for more than a day or two, it costs very, very serious money. 
So how do you deal with this in, in electric markets? Well, in the UK electricity market, um, power is auctioned every day uh, for slots for the, uh, the next day, based on the weather forecast and a number of other factors. And the prices that the utilities pay for electricity then have a tax added to them, which in turn pays for the spinning reserve, which sees to it that if something goes wrong, if some uh, power station has a, an emergency, for example, there will be enough there to keep the lights on. But this is not straightforward, and it's taken something like 100 years for the electricity industry to get to grips with it. So what about the internet? The internet is becoming really, really critical for everything we do over the past 10 years. Um, if I go back 11 or 12 years, when we were thinking about Y2K, and we, we asked what might go wrong, we said, well, if the internet goes down, well, so what? With no email for a week, we might actually get some work done. But nowadays, it's not like that. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an explosion in Britain at a place called Bansfield, which was an oil storage depot. 20 miles south of us, and one of the effects of that was that our local hospital in Cambridge couldn't get at its medical records because both of the supposedly independent lines that went to their service farm, server farm up in Kings Lynn went through that one particular point, and they didn't know it. They had no means of assuring themselves that they had the um, resilience that they thought they did. So the resilience of the internet matters. And we set out to explore what could go wrong. We talked to 35 big ASs. We talked to a number of big equipment vendors. Um, I, I work with some people who have got experience in buying uh, transit and negotiating peering. And uh, there's Chris Hall and my, my colleague Richard Clayton uh, was uh, writing uh, as a network engineer and has written all sorts of software that makes these things work. And so we set out to document what could go wrong and the ways in which the engineering and the economics interacts. You can think of this as BGP security, but extending to the business models. And this came out in February. There's a full report um, on Anissa's website and on ours. So the starting point um, is to say that so far the internet has been hugely resilient. And um, things like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina have basically had only limited local effect. Have we just been lucky? Um, or is the internet a really, really good design? What could go wrong with it? Well, it depends on what you uh, define as, as being wrong, because people have got a wide range of requirements from internet service provision. Um, if you're just you know, a grandparent Skyping your grandkids um, once a week, then 90% availability is probably good enough for you. If you're running a web services business, if you're Google's manager in charge of Google Docs, then you want as much of the world as possible to have 99.99%, because otherwise people will use Office instead. But what could go seriously wrong? Well, there's a number of things. Technical and human infrastructure failure, organizational failure, bugs such as with the IPv6 cutover and attacks, such as malware and routers. And let me briefly go through those. Firstly, they're the ones that are easy to analyze. If we lose electric power, we lose the internet. So if at the solar max next year, we've got a one, one in 500 years solar coronal mass ejection, um, leading to failure of the North American electricity grid for a week, 
um, then we'll have no internet for a week, at least in North America. And because so much of the internet goes through North America, and there's um, relatively little capacity in Asia, that may very well mean that internet service in Australia is pretty vestigial for a while. You might not be able to get um, uh, VoIP to work particularly well, for example. But we don't know. We've got no means of, of modeling the effect of losing America on the internet. Human infrastructure failure, if we had another flu pandemic like in 1918, um, where a couple of percent of, of people die and the other 98% stay at home for six weeks so they don't catch it, um, then that might in turn lead to a failure of electricity supply, which in turn would lead to a failure of the internet. Because even although the people in your um, local network operations center can telecommute from home, it's by no means clear that the um, power industry workers can do the same. So these, at least, we understand, and you can bring risks like these into national contingency planning. Internet resilience has a bundle of issues to do with the um, organization and the business model underlying the Internet that we brought out in our report. If you go back a year or so, the transit market, that is the tier one providers who will connect you to anybody um, on the Internet, there were about 20, 21 of them, and they were all losing shed loads of money. But most of them were fairly small. And so if one of them were to go down, then so what? Everybody else would have the reserve capacity to cope. We pointed out in our report that because all of these firms were losing money, it was likely that there would be some consolidation, and therefore some of them might start to acquire market power, and so there'd be a push for regulation. And of course, a few weeks ago, that actually happened because uh, Level 3 bought Global Crossing. So the two biggest players merged, and they've got a very, very substantial chunk of the transit business. And um, now that you have got uh, Quest and Savis merging as well, um, it seems that the uh, time when the Internet becomes concentrated is upon us. Now, what happens if Level Crossing, if we might call it that, suddenly has a network failure? They misconfigure their routers, and they end up having to spend three weeks sending around guys in vans to reflash everything, so that for three weeks there is no service from level crossing. Well, for three weeks, there would be very, very patchy internet service indeed. And exactly the same thing would happen if one of the big content delivery networks went down. If Google went down, for example, um, or Akamai, um, then things could get rather ropey. So what's going to happen then? Regulation? Who's going to do the regulation? You know, the, the two biggest players now, Level Crossing and Quavis, are basically US corporates. But the next three or four are national champions, NTT, China Telecom, Tata, T-Mobile. Uh, and um, their sovereign governments aren't going to brook much interference. How do you go about doing regulation? How do you go about negotiating an international treaty and having sufficient excess capacity? Well, treaties take 20 years to negotiate. Worried? Maybe a bit. There are techie things that could happen too. An awful lot of the outages that we've had so far have been because of bugs, misconfigurations, fat finger trouble, MIT student connecting a laptop to a, um, a phone in Florida caused MIT to vanish off the, the internet because he exported a routing table. All sorts of dumb stuff like this happens. And although we've more or less got to grips with it for IPv4, we're just about to run out of IPv4 addresses. 
So like it or not, people are going to be moved either onto IPv6 or onto other technical uh, paths such as carrier-grade netting. And misconfigurations, root leaks, and so on become a serious possibility. Is there the possibility that we could have cascade failures leading to widespread outages? We don't know, but the risk certainly isn't zero. How do you go about providing for that? And this brings us to one of the most interesting problems, because if you are going to provide for bad things happening, then who's going to pay for them? It would be great if we could roll out BGPSEC, um, which is currently being um, finalized at the IETF. But the problem with securing BGP is that when you secure your AS, then for the first 70% of people who do so, they're largely helping everybody else. Right? So you don't start to get benefits until most people have signed up for it. And one of the biggest technical challenges that we think is to try and find ways of securing BGP and doing other things um, to make the internet more resilient, which bring local and incremental benefit. And this also applies uh, to things like providing sufficient excess capacity. At the moment, it's difficult to do anything like this, not just because the benefits go to others, but because we've got so little insight as to what the internet actually looks like. People's internal topologies are kept secret for reasons of commercial confidentiality, and there are so many layers of outsourcing that you end up not being able to buy physical root diversity between your hospital and your server farm, even if you set out and try to. And then, of course, there's the defense aspect. Back last April, um, China stole about 15% of the Internet for 18 minutes. A China Telecom leaked a whole lot of routes. Was this fat finger trouble? We suspect it was, but some people say, well, hey, somebody built a cyber nuke and they were testing it, and um, we saw a, a flash that leaked out. How would a bad guy go about taking down the Internet? Well, root filtering is now good enough that unless you're a big player like China Telecom, it's hard to do an attack from a single point. But suppose you were to use one of the many zero-day vulnerabilities that arrive in Linux to take over, let's say, 10,000 Juniper routers, or Cisco, or Huawei, or whoever, and you got them all to announce and tear down bad routes, or you just got them to um, uh, disaggregate everything so that you spammed out the global routing table, that would certainly um, tear up the routing fabric. And how long would it take us to get the internet back up and running again? Two days, three days, a week, two weeks? How do you go about planning for that? How do you go about doing exercises, war games? Given that we're going to be vulnerable to this sort of stuff for five or ten years, what is it prudent to do in advance to reduce the scale and period of any outage? So this was the task that we were set by ANISA, and we come up with a report which has 11 recommendations in it. And, um, they have much the same flavor as the recommendations that we did on, on the more financial side of cybercrime. Uh, first, we want an independent body to investigate major incidents and report on them publicly, because if you don't know what actually is going wrong, um, then it's difficult 
to engineer proper security mechanisms to prevent it going wrong in the future. And to support that, we need to collect consistent and comprehensive long-term network performance data. At present, there's a couple of firms, Renesis and Arbor Networks, who do this, uh, and there's a number of people who have got good collections as part of their PhD thesis, but these tend not to be curated, and once they go and get jobs, um, the, uh, the project languages. So what we really need is a better public domain um, store um, of network performance data. And given this performance data, we can start the research task of coming up with better metrics. Because at the moment, we can measure pretty well what the network performance is between two given points in the network, but we really have no idea how to measure the resilience of the internet, which is, of course, tens of thousands of individual networks of different characteristics, of people who've got different incentives, who've got different um, requirements for um, latency and um, availability and so on and so forth. The next big research task, specifically over the next two years while we're getting BGPSEC sorted out, is how can we develop secure interdomain routing which has got decent incentives for deployment? In other words, a system which, like DNSSEC, will give at least some of the players some local benefits so that they can justify just going ahead and doing it and switching it on um, in advance of everybody else. Then, of course, there's not just the, the issue of resilience at the internet layer, but resilience at the level of an AS. And to a large extent, that may come down to um, letting the tens of thousands of little mom-and-pop ASs um, get access to the best practice that the big boys have currently developed. Now, there's an opportunity for industry. How do you go about developing tools which will enable somebody um, who's running a knock on a shoestring to run it just as capably or almost as capably as Google or Level Crossing or whatever run their operations? Another point is independent testing, because there are only a very small number of firms, firms like Google, which can actually afford to go out and test all the new product offerings and beat up on new protocol proposals uh, and contribute to um, the quality uh, of the Internet infrastructure directly. So there's a role for government, we think, in sponsoring independent testing of equipment and protocols um, so that everybody can um, learn uh, what's good and what's not. Then, of course, you do get the problems referred to earlier with certification schemes that can end up being ineffective or end up being captured or manipulated. The eighth point, and this is one that Anissa has taken vigorously on board, is the need to conduct regular pan-European exercises and war games on the interconnection infrastructure. So if 1% um, of Juniper routers are suddenly going to go AWOL in March 2013, what is going to be the effect and what exactly are ASs in Europe going to do? If you can do an exercise on that and get the people together and game it out, then at least if it does happen in real life, the people who have to work with each other will at least have each other's mobile phone numbers. So that's work in progress. And maybe it's something that could be done usefully in Australia and New Zealand as well. Our ninth recommendation is that we have to start figuring out the regulatory options in the event of transit market failure. And that looks like it's already happening as of last month. So um, people maybe have to get off their backsides and start thinking about that. And it involves a wide range of players from the FCC to DG competition in Europe to... Um, Goodness knows, well, I certainly hope that the ITU doesn't start taking it over, but um, hey, 
Um, that is something that people are going to have to work on. And there are public policy aspects to this, because suppose we get a widespread degradation of the Internet, whether as a result of some external or internal thing, some bug or attack or whatever, um, governments may then be tempted to say, well, panic, 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 let's turn off iPlayer, let's turn off YouTube, let's turn off Skype, so that at least government email to citizens can still get through. Well, a little bit of forethought might be useful, because some things you might not be able to turn off, you might not be able to turn off Skype, and if you were to turn off YouTube, well, a government that turned off a news medium that was relied on by a significant number of its citizens in a time of emergency might actually foment panic instead of suppressing it. So it's useful to talk about these policy things in advance. And finally, can we get some kind of resilience certification scheme? Because if we're going to get this partially driven by business, then what we want is the better ASs to be able to sell their network service to discriminating corporate customers at a premium. And so what sort of scheme would persuade a bank or a supermarket or somebody else who really depends on a good network service to pay extra money? So if you're interested in these issues, I hope you will um, go to our website and uh, get um, our ANISA reports and have a look at them. I'm sure you'll find interesting and useful things in it from the point of view of your business. From our point of view, uh, we reckon we've got a good research um, uh, topic for the next uh, few years or decades, because as, as the online world and the physical world merge, as they're going to over the rest of our lifetimes, this is going to cause all sorts of dislocations. And in order to navigate this, I think we're going to have to create a new profession, a profession of security engineering. And this is going to involve not just understanding cryptography and access controls, but understanding the game theory, understanding the business aspects, um, without which you can't hope that the stuff that you build will actually end up being um, use, useful and usable to someone. It involves other things too, such as psychology, but we're still groping our way towards defining what security engineering is as a profession. It's all these things and it's more. And um, at the tactical level, of course, this research um, effort will throw off all sorts of opportunities for people to do practical things in the business world, like finding ways of securing BGP, which can bring local and incremental benefits to those who deploy them. Now, if you want to learn more about all this, uh, my webpage has got a, a bunch of links to stuff that we've done. Our blog, lightbluetouchpaper.org, yep, as in the far work. Uh, and our annual shindig is the workshop on economics and information security, which is next month in Washington, D.C. And finally, um, I wrote a book on this, trying to bring together some of the things that I thought people would find useful or indeed essential. And um, it's on sale outside, and um, after this session, I'll be signing copies for people who want. Thanks. Um, I want to take you back to the beginning of the talk about uh, financial institutions and their incentives. Um, I'm over here if you're looking for me. That's not helpful. Straight ahead. Uh, well, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, it's not a grand question, I promise. Um, uh, I've heard people from financial institutions say that their incentive um, 
is in the, in the platform because online banking saves them money. I wonder if you had any comments about that. Well, yes. Um, if people uh, do start losing confidence in online banking, um, then that will cost the bank serious money because they'll have to go and buy back all these wine bars in the high street that used to be branches, and they'll have to go and re-employ all these tens of thousands of bank tellers who are now in the dole. And that will cost them an awful lot more money than the fraud does. So the banks really do have an incentive, long-term and strategically, to get this right. However, the problem is that the banks, in our observation, tend to take a very short-term uh, and local and selfish view of it. Um, for example, we looked at um, the um, economics of phishing, and we came to the conclusion that the banks could do very much better if they shared information on phishing websites and got their contractors to compete on speed of takedown. But that idea got no traction in the industry, and neither did the idea that the bank should put their efforts into taking down mule recruitment websites. So yeah, if bank bankers were rational and cooperative animals, um, then they would behave a lot better than they do. Thank, uh, thank you for your presentation. I don't know if you've been tracking what's been happening here in Australia regarding the NBN, but we're at the very early stages of potentially rolling out a massive fibre network across the country. And I was interested in knowing if you had any specific recommendations on what you think we should be doing in order to make that a secure platform. Um, I, I'm afraid I don't really know anything about it. Uh, BGP, SEC, DNS, SEC and so on um, are obviously good stuff, but there's more than that needed to make the thing secure. And um, I presume it will be down to your big local ASs and, um, and, and telcos to get that engineered right. Thank you very much, uh, Ross. I thought it was um, interesting. Can we thank Ross.